0: <laughs> I'm sure you guys can kind of appreciate that, working through things. Mm-hmm. Problem arises, you have to deal with it, and then you move on to the next one. Yep.
1: And there's always going to be another problem. <laughs> always.
0: Always, always. And so how long have you been a part of the organization?
1: I have worked with North Coast Ship Crisis Team for eight years.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So you've, you've been there for some time.
1: <laughs> yeah. I started when I was 19 years old. I was a part-time on-call advocate um, so we serve Humboldt and Norte County. Okay. And so I was up in Crescent City and I started as a part-time on-call advocate. So I was on-call two weekends a month and in the office two days. And then I became full-time, moved here, and now I'm the education and outreach manager. Oh, well,
2: congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and you, how long, I'm sorry,
0: how long did you say you've been there? Just a couple months.
2: Yeah. So, um, I started full-time last November, so it's been a little while. And then I think I started part-time like going through training um, in September. So officially it's been like nine months, I think, or eight mm-hmm. months, but full-time like six.
0: Nine months, eight years. You guys <laughs> you guys are out there <laughs> putting in some work. Yeah. And is that kind of where you guys are at now as you're trying to recruit new people, bring on new team members, kind of just get more exposure in the community?
1: Yeah. So. Oh, sorry. I thought you were, like, close. Oh, no. I'm, <laughs>
0: I'm just over here wiping the sweat <laughs> off of my face. No. Might need to invest in, like, a rag I could just have sitting there over somewhere. Go. Yeah.
1: Um, so we have pretty much all of the, like, our full-time staff. So we have full-time staff that we have in office. Um, but we're always recruiting for our volunteer program. So we have pretty new. It started, I believe, like, February of last year. Um, and we go through... And recruit people. Our next cohort's going to potentially be in August, um, and we get a lot of like Cal Poly humble grad students, um, but it's open to anybody. And so we ask for like a year commitment. They go through an eighty-plus hour sexual assault counselor training. Um, and for our volunteers, the expectation isn't to respond out <laughs> as like we do. If we're holding the hotline and we get a call, we respond out. Um, but for volunteers, the ask is just to, like, answer the phone, communicate with our full-time advocates, um, and take crisis calls.
0: And what does Respond Out mean? You reach out to them and try to do a follow-up? or
1: Yeah, so we, um, as advocates, there is, like, laws in California um, that, like, when a sexual assault is reported through law enforcement that they legally have to call us. We have MOUs with them and the hospital. So if somebody presents the names that they've experienced a sexual assault, we get called. And so we respond out to law enforcement interviews, we respond out to the hospital, um, we respond out to homes if law enforcement is present. And so that's like our 24-hour crisis response. So where there was somebody through the initial interview process, potentially the medical forensic exam or the rape kit start exam. Um, and then we provide like ongoing advocacy and accompaniments through like if they have a second interview with law enforcement or um, it's going through the criminal justice process. We can go to court with the person or we can go there. We call them court watches because people don't have to go to court, um, but we can go there, get the information and report back to the survivor directly.
0: And so is your guys' role in that more passive? Or are you just there to kind of provide support or do you take a more active kind of speaker role in that, an advocacy role where you guys are speaking on their behalf in some regard and trying to walk them through the process?
1: We, so we never want to speak for the survivor. Um but we speak through them, yeah, I guess would yeah. be more Yeah. So if apropos. somebody doesn't feel comfortable like sharing something with law enforcement, the hard thing is that we can't be in we can't be in the oh, I'm gonna lose it. What is it? Like the evidence. We can't be in the mm-hmm. line of evidence. Mm-hmm. So if a survivor shares something with us in confidence and wants us to share that with law enforcement, we can't like speak for them. Otherwise it's coming from us and we could get subpoenaed. Um, but we could kind of like Let the survivor know, like, remember remember what you shared with me or would you be okay talking a little bit about what we just talked about with them? So we're with them through the whole process. And we're also kind of the go-between because there's a lot of legal jargon. There's a lot of steps. And so we're kind of just guiding them through, like, this is what's happening next. Are you okay with that? Um, If law enforcement or another entity is victim blaming, the survivor doesn't feel comfortable, we do step in. And we say, like, this person needs a break. Or. Can we step outside and have a conversation? You know, those kinds of things. So we do mediate um kind of the process in general, just kind of like to interject if things are like going astray or you starting can, to go a little sideways. Yeah. Then we're like, let's take a break. So Well,
0: you have to think that when you guys are going out there and meeting these people, they're not having the best day. And yeah. so on top of the stress mm-hmm. of what they went through in their experience, mm-hmm. then they're they're meeting with cops. They're almost reliving it again to try to explain what happened. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine it'd be pretty beneficial having somebody there that kind of gets it, can walk you through the process, almost hold your hand as you're you're enduring what you are.
1: Yeah. And we we go past that as well. And we've and we've experienced and we share this with law enforcement. We get a call out because law enforcement doesn't always give us a call, even though they're supposed to and we understand like when you're responding on scene in that moment that you're wanting to, you know, get the ball rolling and you know, we have a 30-minute response time where it usually doesn't take us the full 30 minutes to get there. We just have that because we have people who live in, you know, McKinleyville. And if we're responding out to Eureka, it's going to take a minute. <laughs> Those kinds of things. And so sometimes law enforcement doesn't want to wait and so they don't give us a call. Or they offer our services to the survivor and they're like, no, I don't want another person in the room. They don't want to feel like they're putting somebody out or, you know, creating more energy around something that maybe they don't want the focus on. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But... <laughs> So like, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So law enforcement doesn't always give us a call, but we've noticed that when we do respond out and there, there is an advocate present, that survivor is more likely to go through the criminal justice process because for a lot of people, they go through that initial interview or they go through the start exam and they do have to relive it. And when you do the initial interview, you're really you're reliving it. You're sharing your experience of what happened. And for a lot of law enforcement, that's from a linear standpoint. So like from what happened before the assault, during, and then your response afterwards. And then same for the medical forensic exam. They have their own list of questions. So you do the interview with law enforcement. They determine if you're eligible for a start exam. And then you go through the the medical forensic exam, which has an interview portion, and then it has the physical examination. Um, So that's two times within a span of potentially four hours having to relive your experience.
0: And with two separate people. It's not Mm -hmm. even reliving it to the same person again. you got to retell it to some other stranger.
1: Yeah. And then if it goes through the criminal justice system or so there's a start exam, that evidence gets collected. Law enforcement does their investigation and sometimes they they request the survivor to come back and uh, answer a few different questions. Or, you know, they get some information. They want to relay that with the survivor. Those kinds of things. So that might be a second interview, potentially a third. Um, And then it goes to the district attorney's office. They decide if they want to charge that case or not. And then they also have a DA investigator who might have their own set of questions. So you're talking to the DA's office and then going through the court process. If it goes to trial, there's a preliminary hearing. Um, If you are an adult, you're most likely going to have to testify in the preliminary hearing. If you're a minor, there's a thing called Prop 115 where the responding law enforcement officer who took your initial interview um, or an officer who was on the case um, can testify on your behalf uh, of the knowledge that they have and what they put in their report. Um, But if you're an adult, that's you. (laughs) You Is that
0: just to protect the identity of the
1: minor in that situation? Yeah, and also not to, like, re-traumatize. So they try not to re-traumatize the survivor through the process. That's not the goal. Uh, Or The goal is to not re-traumatize. But with minors, too, there's also the higher chance of once the evidence is being shown in court that the the perpetrator or the defendant is like, cut cut it. I want a plea deal. I want to take a plea because they don't want it to go to trial and be seen in front of a jury. So we see that a lot of times, too, especially with minor cases, that when it's Prop 115 um, and the, the law enforcement officer is testifying on their behalf and all the evidence is laid out, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> like, oh, this is going to be It's bad.
0: not going to end well for me.
1: Exactly. And so then they see the plea. And so there's also that piece. But if you're an adult going through that, you're asked to testify in the preliminary hearing and then at trial as well. So it's like a total of like six to seven times that you could have to share your experience in a linear linear, linear way through that process.
0: What determines if it will go with, with criminal proceedings? If when you go into the hospital, I would imagine they do a rape kit. That would be that point. That's just my CSI background, (laughs) you know. Yeah. What's the process for that?
1: I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles. It's not like SVU. It's not like SVU at all. Shockingly, it's not like SVU at all. Um, We have no Olivia Benson's out here. The the SART exam itself doesn't necessarily like prove that somebody experienced a sexual assault. And a lot of times, even if like harm happened that there might not be DNA evidence or um, it takes a lot of months for the, the stuff to get processed through, through DOJ. So we're seeing at like six months more or more turnaround six for DNA out. evidence. Um, and so the investigation will move forward without getting that back as well. So if they're naming like, Oh, from their, their story and who they're able to kind of talk to. If there's witnesses that were present who can cooperate or if there's a lot of times it's like text messages, voicemails, Snapchats, those kinds of things, if there's things to cooperate their evidence. Um, but I've experienced times where I'm like, oh, this is going to get prosecuted by the DA's office for sure. Like this feels like a strong case and they decide not to move forward. So it's really on who who's prosecuting it and if they feel like, um, you know, there's enough to move forward. Because a lot of times, especially with sexual assaults, it's a he, like a he said, she said. So there's not a witness. There's they, not a lot of cooperation. Uh, yeah,
2: they want that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, for sure, we can successfully prosecute. So,
0: Which is frustrating if you're the victim or even you guys. And the evidence isn't quite there, but you kind of do know that it happened. Mm-hmm. And it's just overcoming that barrier of, okay, how do we, where's the evidence for this?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard, like, especially for survivors, it's a hard place for us to be in because, you know, the DA's office is coming forward and saying, you know, there's not enough evidence for us to move forward or we can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt or, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then, like, not so much in recent years, but in the past, the DA's office would, like, share information with us just to then share with the survivor. So we would be the ones relaying the information of like your case isn't moving forward and here's why. And we can set up a meeting with the DA to talk about it. Um, But then that's, you know, processing like why wasn't my statement good enough? You know, what what could have I done differently? Well, that's almost an
0: unfair burden to put on you guys kicking the ball down saying, okay, your case didn't go through, but you guys need to break the news to them. You're going to tell them, hey, sorry.
1: Yeah, which I mean, it's hard because before a lot of times like we we do have a different relationship with survivors because we do offer that like we have our hotline. We have one-on-one peer counseling. We're the ones relaying a lot of the information regarding court. Um, We're dealing with a lot of the emotional like term like not turmoil, but like the emotional burnout of the process itself as well as processing the assault itself, the trauma itself. So it's also like it's navigating these systems as well as your own personal healing through that and for a lot of people they tie their healing with like the turnout from the judicial system so they're like if this person is held liable then you know these people believed me and you know I haven't met a DA or um another like an advocate from another system that just blatantly was like, I do not believe you. I've never experienced that. They always come from a place of like, you know, we believe what you shared with us and we're so sure that it happened. There's just not enough for us to prove beyond a reasonable doubt or it for a lot of times they also make the decision of like if this is going to be, you know, too much of a mental burden on the survivor where they think that they might not be able to like be on the stand. So they're like, you know looking out for them in in their own way. It just doesn't feel validating when you're that person who put everything on the line. Sometimes.
0: Does that recovery process extend if the person that is accused of these crimes isn't found guilty? So rather than maybe them processing through this experience in a year or two it is now three or four years or five years. I mean, is there a hold time on that because of that?
1: So healing's not linear (laughs) in general. And so, for a lot of survivors, we've seen, like, once that court court happened and maybe that person was found, you know, accountable or guilty, that they're like, okay, that weight's lifted off their shoulders of that burden. But we connect with survivors whether they're going through the criminal, like, criminal process or not. So whether somebody reports or not, we still connect with them. Um, and so we see, like, the waves will come. So a lot of times around, like, anniversaries or different times of, like, the year is really hard or, you know, different things like that. So even if somebody's case doesn't go through to trial, our services are always available. And so we do see a lot of times that people might take a break afterwards and they might come back and be like, I still feel a little like unrest around this. Um, so it, it just kind of ebbs and flows. We also serve a lot of survivors who've never reported to law enforcement. And so we offer our counseling services, other things like that. But for a lot of people, if they don't have a great experience with law enforcement, they, it was, you know, Ongoing from a partner. Um, when we're tabling, a lot of the times when we're tabling, we get a lot of people who just come up to our booth and share that they've experienced assault many years ago, or and they say like, I've never told anybody this, but like, thank you for what you're doing. Those kinds of things. So we also have a lot of people who just don't share their experience, um, and we serve a lot of older clients as well who just have never shared their experience, and so they see our hotline somewhere, or they recently they've seen like our bus ads or those kinds of things, and they're like, I just wanted to talk to somebody about this. And like. We're here to listen.
0: Do you notice a difference in the people that come forward and maybe do try to go down the prosecution route or at least come forward to talk to you guys versus the ones that are a little more suppressive in it and try to just bury it down and ignore that it happened? Yeah. I mean, is there, a di- is there like a tangible difference you can see in those people or, or how they cover from that? Or it's pretty right. hard to say. It just varies too much. I th- yeah. go for it.
1: I think it varies. I think mm-hmm. it's various because it's so, it's so hard to kind of also, like, navigate of, like, oh, you know, who comes forward and who who doesn't. Because, I mean, we connect with – our primary work is in high schools currently. We run, like, the, the check-it club that Cal Poly Humboldt has. We run a model of that at, like, Arcata High primarily. Um, but we – we're at, like, the high school level, and so we also get disclosures from teens as well who just don't want to report to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like – there's not like a a marker of like you know these people typically don't report to law enforcement compared to somebody else right. no identifiers that you no. guys can point out yeah. yeah it doesn't really negate off of age either yeah um we know it's a lot of times like past experience with law enforcement a big one like if they've had an ongoing relationship with law enforcement or if it's not their first assault that they've experienced
0: they're less likely to come forward if it's not their first one wow
1: potentially so, like, that's what i've personally seen if somebody has or if they have experienced an assault and they did report it to law enforcement mm-hmm. and there wasn't like a, an outcome or it didn't move forward then they're yeah. less likely to come forward again.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to kind of say is like if someone isn't necessarily wanting to report to law enforcement, it doesn't mean that they're not wanting to talk about it to mm-hmm. anybody. It's just yeah. like, oh, they may have a barrier um, from a bad experience before or um, just maybe not ready to do it in that way or their healing journey doesn't look like wanting prosecution, right? Mm-hmm. they're just wanting to heal on their own and um, things like that. So i don't I don't think um it's everyone's so different, right and um so if someone does decide to go through the process, great, you know that's if what they want to do, but if not, I think um that doesn't mean that they aren't gonna be talking about it openly and like healing you know it's mm-hmm. some people that's part of the healing process, and some people it's not so
0: when well, it has to be challenging working through stigma, especially around cops from the past because what I've heard. And again, this is just a layman's mm-hmm. perspective of somebody not involved, is that coming forward with a case like this, to officers in the past, you might have been not necessarily just brushed aside, but it, w- it wouldn't translate to anything. Mm-hmm. And so now that times kind of have changed and people are more willing to go down this road with people and at least investigate and see where the evidence lies. You almost have to overcome those preconceived notions of, well, if I go to the cops, nothing's going to happen, so I might as well not even try. Mm -hmm. Whereas now you probably should try because it might actually go somewhere and you might be
2: able to get some closure. Yeah. um, I mean, still, like, um, a lot of times it doesn't, you know, isn't prosecuted still. And Mm -hmm. so.
0: um, But is that a result of lack of effort on the police or it's just that evidence? What does that translate from?
1: It's hard to pinpoint because I mean we're not in law enforcement, so we're also on the outside perspective. So like we don't know the ins and outs of their investigation. Like we're calling to get updates or like different things like that. But we're not like in the trenches with law enforcement doing like the active investigation, unless you know the survivors getting called in to do you know like a like a phone call with them or different things like that. So I mean, it's hard to kind of pinpoint like where the pieces aren't falling into place. Where
0: it kind of falls off the cliff. Yeah,
1: and I mean. When reporting, like, it's, these crimes in itself are really hard to prosecute. And when we're talking about, like, sexualized violence, too, there is also, like, that preconceived of, like, a lot of the times these people who are reporting, they have, this is somebody that they know. This is somebody that is either have, like, a prior intimate connection with, a friend of a friend, somebody who has access to this person. So there's also a relationship between the survivor and the perpetrator a lot of the times that makes it really hard to come forward. And saying, like, you know, I don't want to see this person in jail. I just want to see this person, you know, name what they did to me. Or, you know, those kinds of feelings, too. So law enforcement's also been pickle of, like, well, if we move forward, this person might go to jail. And this person is naming that they don't want this person to go to jail. And then, um, you know, I I can't say where, like, where it falls apart for a lot of people. Or, like, where the investigation doesn't come to, like, fruition through court. Um, But there are a lot of, there are quite a few that do. And so it's kind of like that dice roll. And my experience with, there are some law enforcement agencies that are more in tune to connecting with us than others. This is how it is. Um, and there are some really great, like, detectives and investigators and officers who do their due diligence and are really open and transparent with the survivor about, like, what's going on through that process. And there are others who aren't. And so it's also, you know, the dice roll of who you get when responding out. It, that's also a big factor of like who's showing up when you're making a report really does change on the trajectory of like how this might go
0: do you think it's a good thing and your eyes's opinion that that burden of proof is so high or do you think there are cases where it could be a little less stringent because the thing that always gets tossed around is well people sometimes make false accusations there are some people that are not necessarily the most upstanding and might be more willing to lie just in general do you guys buy into that or do you think I mean, that's kind of yeah. a loaded no, question, no, no, right? Like,
1: statistically, less than 2% of people who come forward are false reports. And that also counts for those people who recant their story. So if somebody's facing retaliation or they had a bad interview with law enforcement and they say, I don't want to do this anymore, that's also counted in that statistic of false reporting because they're recanting their story. So less than 2% of reports made to law enforcement are false reports. And I believe it's like less than 60% of survivors ever make a report to law enforcement so when we're looking at it from that perspective of like the the amount of harm that's happening compared to the amount of harm that's reported it's astronomical and so there is a stigma around false reporting and that if somebody's coming forward and they've had a history of making reports if they have a history of like mental health or addiction they're viewed through a different lens and when we're talking about sexualized violence and we're talking about perpetrators, they're looking for vulnerable populations or people that they can easily, you know, manipulate or harm or, you know, those kinds of outward things. they are not looking for credible people. Um, if it's somebody who's like, it's like a stranger or different things like that. And those ones are seem to be more believed than the intimate partner who, you know, crossed the line that there wasn't consent. But there's an ongoing relationship. So the, the lines are blurred. You know, those kinds of cases are the ones where they're like, uh, and it's frustrating because you're validating that survivor in that place of, you know, you know, was this consensual for you? Did this person ask you? Did they say yes? How did you feel? And all the lines are saying, that's an assault. And so we're validating that person in their experience. All of our advocates and our agency, we come from a place of believing. So that's the first place that we come to when somebody comes to us and they share their experience. We say that we believe them. And sometimes survivors and with trauma and compounded trauma, things aren't linear. And so someone's coming and connecting with us and their are stories all over the place. You know, they're in a really high traumatic place. Majority of the time, the people who reach out to us aren't, they're they experiencing something extremely traumatic and they're connecting with us about that trauma. It's not about just like, oh, how's your day going? You know, it's. This is happening in real time. There could be actively triggered. They could have seen their perpetrator and they're hyperventilating and they're calling our hotline to try to, you know, ground themselves. And so we're not coming from that like ABC place of law enforcement where we're trying to figure out the the who done it. We're just there to listen. And so around like reporting or different things like that, it's really hard when like law enforcement's naming like, oh, I don't believe this person. But we're always going to come from a place of believing, even if the dots don't make sense in the moment.
2: Yeah. And what we know about trauma in the brain is Mm -hmm. that things aren't linear. And um, so it can be hard to be like, oh, this is how things exactly happened. And so that can make things hard to prosecute when they're, um, you know, oh, did you change your story? But really like their brain is um, what went into the survival Mm -hmm. state and is really hard to remember exactly what happened and present it in a way exactly the same every time. So Um, To go back to like what we were talking about earlier and like prosecuting barriers, I could see how trauma affects the brain being one of those. And maybe, um, you know, if everyone's not the most trauma informed, they might not understand that these are reactions to trauma.
0: Well, and the preconceived Mm -hmm. stigma that you kind of touched on must be challenging because if you have a bad person and something bad like this happens to them, it still happened to them. And just because they might not be the most upstanding citizen doesn't mean that their case shouldn't be treated regardless of that Mm -hmm. and handled appropriately as if they were anybody else.
1: Investigate at the very least. You know, interview someone, something like that. You know, like it's hard. And especially if somebody's experienced harm in the past, when somebody experiences a new trauma or a new sexual assault, sometimes those assaults blend in the brain. And so when they're retelling their story, they might throw in a piece of, you know, a memory that they had from a past assault that was triggering during the the newest assault. And so it's, you know, overlaps a little bit. Yeah. And so we we have, you know, this opportunity as advocates to be able to kind of like break through a lot of that and have those conversations when it's like other other service avenues or when you're reporting, you know, they have these lines that they're looking for that they're, you know, I need I need this information to do X, Y and Z. And if the information's not accurate or you know, it's back and forth, like they, they can't do their job. And so there's also that that limbo too. And it's just, you know, it's a hard place to be, in. sometimes when we we're trying to navigate of like, did this happen last month, or was this something that happened from an assault five years ago? let's navigate let's navigate that.
0: Do you think that the stigma around, oh some people might lie, that whole idea. do you think that's more? discrediting to the movement as a whole people are kind of blowing that out of proportion in some sense and that it's almost having the opposite effect because then people become desensitized to these cases when they do come forward or do you think there's still validity in looking at those cases and saying yeah that two percent not a huge number yeah 2%,
1: no i mean there are people who come forward and name that they you know or make a false report so that is accurate um i think the climate and, like, coming at every time somebody comes forward as, is this person lying? I don't think that's helpful. I don't think, I don't think that's a good place right. to sit It's safer in. to
2: assume the 98% yeah. than the two, right? hmm Yeah.
1: And so, I mean, I think that's used as a scapegoat for a lot of people of not facing the actual problem. Um, that harm happens. And I think especially here in, I'm going to shout out rural communities, <laughs> here in small towns, you know somebody. If somebody's coming forward and they're naming somebody as a perpetrator, and let's say that's your brother's best friend, you're not going to sit there and be like, well, or someone can sit there and be like, well, they were never weird to me. You know, they didn't know anything to me. I know this person. And so if you don't know that person who's coming forward and saying this person harmed me, you're going to stick up for your friend. And. Here in small communities, like, word of mouth is huge. So if somebody already has, you know, a reputation or if they've came forward and they, let's say they recanted, maybe they came to, maybe they even make a report to law enforcement, maybe they talked to a school counselor. And that that triggered a report. And then they're saying, you know, I don't want to move forward with this. And everybody at school is calling them a liar. Because the person who caused them harm, you know, they have, let's say they have friends. They have a support system. They come from a good family. You know. That's a good kid. You're just trying to discredit, you're gonna ruin that kid's life. That's what's put on that other person. You're gonna ruin that person's life. You know, as a community, you don't wanna assume that harm happens here and you don't wanna face that. It's just a reality. You wanna, you wanna think that your neighborhoods are safe, that you're, you know, that you can send your kid to school and there not be any harm. We wanna believe that. And the reality is that harm happens everywhere and everybody is vulnerable to harm. And it's also the same for, you know, when male survivors come forward, there's that stigma, there's homophobia, there's all these other barriers of like, why didn't, you know, oh, he was assaulted by a girl, he, didn't he want it? Those kinds of things. Like there's, there's gender stereotypes that come into play. There is alienation if you're, you know, not in the, the majority, if you're in any minority. And so there's just a lot of overlapping things that make it really hard for people to, one, come forward. And to go through that process and like see it all the way through.
0: The crazy thing is that everybody knows somebody, or most mm-hmm. people know somebody that's been through it. I mean, I can remember back in high school having friends that would, you know, maybe casually bring it up one night or something and start mm-hmm. talking about it. And you're like, what? That, what? But on the flip side, I've also talked to people who of course I can't be a hundred percent sure, but I'm 99% sure have told me something and formulated a whole lie. So I think I'm not necessarily jaded in that regard. Cause if somebody tells me, I'm gonna instantly believe you because why I wouldn't assume that you would lie. I would just always yeah. give somebody the benefit mm-hmm. of that yeah. doubt. But it is also in the back of my head that some people do lie. Mm-hmm. But, and I think people can go off the ropes with that and start thinking, oh, that translates to everybody lies. And so we should go into the situation assuming they're lying until they're proven innocent. And I think in a court of law, you shouldn't go down that route. You should maintain <laughs> the neutrality of, let's mm-hmm. just see where the information lies. And I think people get tripped up outside of a court of law of just, I know somebody that might have lied, so now everybody's, everybody's a liar. liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you're kind of just rolling back the ball in the progress.
1: Everybody's an at-home Olivia Benson. Everybody's a who done it. Facebook investigator.
2: (laughs) Especially nowadays, right? Everybody's doing their own research. Everybody's digging into everything. Mm -hmm. And within the media, if someone, um, you know, does make a false report, that's going to get blown up and way more exposure than something that happens all the time, you know, which is people telling the truth about what happens. And Mm -hmm. that sexual violence is very rampant in our society, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, just within that culture i think media definitely um attaches to those and kind of blows those out of proportion like kind of like you were talking about
0: mm-hmm. well the amber heard case yeah i mean what what was your guys's take on that where you are so close to these issues seeing that thing unfold
1: i personally only watch like the lives on like TikTok, so like i didn't like sit down and like TikTok sleuth yeah <laughs> yeah so i was like okay i like watched some of it so i I didn't see a lot of like the testimony of it. I also know like these are two big like
0: high profile yeah. actors. So
1: it's gonna get a lot of traction, a lot mm. of attention. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people know Johnny Depp over Amber Heard. You know what I mean? So that also had, you know, this person is, you know, Jack Sparrow. Oh no. <laughs> so like there's also those preconceived notions. But I didn't watch the tri- like the trial at all, except for tiktok lives <laughs> so yeah. I was
2: like, okay. and that was before i was with the agency too so i didn't like not necessarily a, in your purview yeah yeah mm. as much mm-hmm.
1: yeah some of some of our advocates are really like some of our teammates are really into like keeping up with all of like the media cases and those kinds of things for myself i gotta be really mindful of like burnout and so i have to like navigate like what i'm consuming on like media because mm-hmm. i will get into like a rabbit hole of it. I can slip into that a lot.
0: You just you Google one thing and then three hours later it's four in the morning and you're still looking Mm -hmm. at these things. The Amber Heard case I thought was fascinating. I was talking to a friend about it and her biggest point is she felt she was mad that there was to some extent so much attention around it after the verdict came out because Mm -hmm. she felt like it was going to discredit future people from coming forward. Regardless Mm -hmm. that she was found guilty and that that's what the court decided. She didn't think that was so much n- so really relevant to the case. Mm-hmm. It was that now that there was this case that this happened and she, it didn't go in her way, future survivors might not get the benefit yeah. of the doubt. And so we should kind of sweep that case under mm-hmm. the rug to some sense, which kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, that's an interesting way of looking at this, that because it didn't pan out how we- Society almost would have wanted it to pan out. Mm-hmm. Now we kind of need to just
1: not do any more of that. Yeah, drop that <laughs> don't one. Look at it. Don't yeah, don't look, look at it. that
0: one. It didn't go our way. Drop it. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the next one.
1: Yeah, well, it's important to look at even the cases that don't go like in the favor of survivors. Like they still went through the criminal justice process and looking at, you know, how did they come to this verdict? What kind of like things systematically were were playing against them? You know, when we're talking about like, going to a trial, it mean, that you're sitting in front of twelve jurors who you know, have their own set of ideals. And so that that also plays into it because even if you're coming in saying you're unbiased, everybody has a bias. Nobody is truly unbiased, in my opinion. There's somebody always has something that they fundamentally believe. We all have a set of beliefs and so we're all gonna have a set of biases. So sitting there and being like, I'm unbiased, I have no opinion, you have an opinion.
0: Well especially (laughs) around something charged like this. Yes. I mean nobody is just completely impartial when it comes to difficult subjects, especially Mm -hmm. as it relates to If it's kids that are going through it or younger Mm -hmm. adults, to stay impartial in those situations is incredibly challenging.
1: Yeah. I know for myself, I've been called up to, like, do, like, your jury duty, you know, your civic duty. And they ask you if I I can be unbiased. And I'm like, no. And this is why. This is what I do for work. (laughs) Those kinds of things. And so easy to get dismissed from a jury. Just say I'm not biased. So I don't know around that. I'm like, people have a bias. People have an opinion.
0: Do you feel like where you guys are going kind of working in this field and you're around it so much, do you feel like you're almost jaded in the opposite way? Because you're, I don't want to say you're coming face to face with the worst of humanity in some sense, but you're coming face to face with these kind of traumatic experiences and you're seeing them, I would imagine, fairly constantly because you guys mm-hmm. are an organization and you're still in business and everything seems yeah. to be going well for you. So I would imagine there are cases coming your way. Does mm-hmm. that... I mean, do you ever have to like take a couple weeks and just decompress or try to find some grounding again? Or how do you work through that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, self-care is very important within uh, the work that we do. So I've definitely like, obviously, I'm new, started last year, um, but it's there's kind of a silver lining with that because I've had to teach myself like more self-care skills and like be really good about that. Um, so that's huge. Um but uh, i trying to remember the rest of your question. Just,
0: I mean, the thing you hear with cops, right, is burnout. Because yeah. you're coming up on scene. Sometimes there's dead bodies. Sometimes there's mutilated kids. There are these yeah. really extreme circumstances. Yeah. And you guys are seeing this very singular set of mm-hmm. extreme circumstances where people are going through an experience they didn't necessarily ask for. Mm-hmm. And that's all you're seeing when you go to work. I go to work. <laughs> I sit here. I can crack a beer. I, could, I get to talk to interesting people. Yeah. Sometimes I have... Kind of depressing conversations at 10 o'clock in the morning, sometimes great ones. (laughs) But you guys are in the thick of it. And I would Mm -hmm. imagine that would have to weigh on you in some regard. I mean, you talked about burnout. I would Mm -hmm. imagine maintaining people that don't get jaded and that have a clear head and can work through these is incredibly important. How do you just get by? Does it just become (laughs) a job and you get a little desensitized in some regard? Do you have to become desensitized so you can get through it? I've done this
1: work for a hot minute. I started this work at 19, so I Which think is crazy I just
0: <laughs> for a 19 year old to say, "Yep, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go down. I'm going to do gonna this." this. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think uh, I can't remember. I think I rewired my brain a little bit of like this is just what you have to get used to. And um, I also think that people that come specifically into this work come for a reason. They're connected to it in some way. Either there's a personal impact, or there is a connection to somebody in their life that they love that they want to do this work. They want to connect with survivors and they want to pr- pr- like provide that gap. Um realistically the turnover in our work is about 2 years. Somebody lasts about 2 years in our job and then they, you know, for personal reasons other things like that different opportunities come up in their life or they're like here we go. Um we also get a lot of people who have like freshly graduated and so they're like this is their their stepping stone mm-hmm. they realize I it's don't a big step. this is a big step. Um But, like, self-care is important. We, in the, like, this last year, we got a new executive director, Amanda LeBlanc. Shout out. She is amazing. She has completely changed our organization for the better. We used to not have open business hours where we had, like, a public office where people could come in and receive one-on-one crisis interventions or walk in and receive services. Now we do. Um, We have a space in Arcata that's open to the public. We have a space in Crescent City that's open to the public. Um... We have monthly self-care days where we come together as an office. We usually involve food. It's going to be completely transparent. involves food. So it's a good way to bring people in. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, we've got some snacks. Yeah. So we, we have food. We make like a craft together. We do um, like vision board, self-love, different things like that. So our agency dynamic is very much of like taking care of ours on our own so we can take care of others. Um, it, family comes first. We prioritize family within our agency. We have advocates who have kids, young kids, you know, your daycare is not working out, like bring your kid in for a little bit, that kind of thing. Or, you know, involving our family in like the work that we do of like creating support, having open times where people can come in or, you know, oh, my partner's driving through Arcata. I'm going to step out and have lunch with them. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're having a hard day, Amanda's the first person to say, can you go home? You know, if you need to go home, if you need to take care of yourself, what do you need? Um, we really prioritize, we really try to prioritize self-care in our everyday work life. Um, and then independently, we also like, what do you do to take care of yourself? Uh, we start that in the training. So we give people like after every, you know, module, we're like, so what are you going to do to take care of yourself now? Because you just learned for three hours about child sexual abuse. Uh, what are you going to do to take care of yourself? Make yourself a meal, go for a walk, those kinds of things. And so. Uh, I like to think that we're really all in tune with each other in the office. So if somebody's having an off day, we kind of like feel, um, we always case. So if somebody has a really hard case that they're going through, we provide extra support. We ask if they want another advocate there, you know, those kinds of things. So there are different levels of like trauma response and care within our own agency too. So that also helps. And that wasn't always the case. And so I think that's like something that, in these last few months, we've really prioritized and I definitely, like, see a difference. Because before... It
0: was a little challenging.
1: Very challenging. It's hard. And it's also, like, it's a very one-on-one job because when we're going out and we're responding, there's just one of us. And so we're connecting with that person. You build a connection with that person, especially, you know, you're there responding. You're there that at the initial interview a lot of the times, and then you're there through the whole court process. So we really get to see the growth and healing and that connection with that survivor, which for a lot of our advocates, that feeds something for them. You know, this is, a, this is an equal exchange for a lot of people of, you know, I know when I work with clients and I work with survivors and I do one-on-one, you know, counseling, peer counseling with them and I leave a session and I, I feel rejuvenated. Like, yeah, I, we just talked for an hour about some really hard shit sorry like really hard stuff no, you can okay. on it. yeah you okay. can. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about some really hard shit and like you unearth a lot but you also get to see the growth in somebody else and like you get to see them th- their life change and you get to see you know the happiness and all those other things kind of return and you know you ride the wave with them and it's really rewarding to see somebody come out from something so traumatic on like the other side and see that you know See people's personalities change and grow, and like their jokes and different stuff like that. Yeah. Like, some of the survivors that I work with are the most funniest people I've ever met in my life, and that helps.
0: <laughs> Is there a sense or an aspect of trauma bonding that you have to be careful of? That where you are going through this experience pretty adjacent to this person, that you can kind of slip into this trap where you take on a lot of what they went through, mm-hmm. and then that builds up from person that you're working with the person that you're working with
1: yeah vicarious trauma is huge <laughs> um especially when we're responding on scene you know i responded on scene to people's apartments where there was blood on the floor and like different things like that so i mean very much like a first responder um and then talking and navigating where we really prioritize boundaries not just for ourselves but for the service because i mean we have a 24-hour hotline But that doesn't mean I'm available 24-7. And so for a lot of people to get really connected with that person who responded out and was there holding their hand, was there through that, which, you know, we want to foster those bonds in a safe way. Um, We're also not the only support system that that this person needs. Um, It takes a network of people. And so, like, we really have to be clear of, you know, I'm available these days or, you know, I might not answer every time you call my work phone. I'm not on all the time, but our hotline is available. And so navigating, you know, not just myself being that person, but also like offering and saying like, oh, this is my teammate, Makai, you know, and like so they know who everybody is. So they feel comfortable reaching out to all of us and not just the singular because that's really hard.
2: Yeah. And I think a big part of that is really like identifying how much we can do because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are there for a lot of people in a lot of ways. But there are some things where uh, a big part of what we do is referrals. So, you know. Peer counseling can only go so far and a lot of what we do is like identifying their needs and like okay this is what you want. You want to do this form of therapy. Let's try and find someone who can help you with that and then we can do like a warm handoff. Mm-hmm.
0: Well yeah setting boundaries I would imagine is critical to doing your job effectively because mm-hmm. that would just feed into the burnout. If you if somebody gets attached to you and then you obviously feel compelled to be available to them and then you're working 24-7 and it's just It's all adding up.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's also like, it's a human need to be like wanted. And so for a lot of people too, it's like you build a connection with somebody, you want to be there. And it's not that we're like, no, we don't want you to be there for them. It's like, you got to take care of yourself. Otherwise it's going to be, we're not, if we're just giving and giving, giving from an empty cup, it's going to run dry. And so really prioritizing, like if you give everything to this one person, you're not going to be able to be there for all of these other people because You I mean our, our caseloads vary too sometimes? Um, because I primarily do education, so my caseload has gotten a lot lower over the years. I used to be in direct client services, so I was navigating about like eight clients, and so now I hold about three at,
2: at any given time. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah, so, so I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna add that some of our team is just in direct client services, right? And, um, luckily, at least I feel lucky being a part of the education team, so we're doing outreach tabling, we're going into high schools and doing prevention education. And I think that's really rewarding as well. Um, but also like less burnout and uh, more like creativity and things like that. Just a different
0: outlet, you know. Is that where people normally get started is the education side or do they go right into direct intervention?
1: Direct. Right so, into yeah. the... You guys <laughs> throw
0: them to the fire. You say, well, yeah.
2: you're either going to make it or you're yeah. not. Yep, that first, right? Yeah, sure? yeah, yeah. Wow. Be-
1: because... To do this educational piece, you need to have like the fundamentals of like the services that we provide because people ask. Yeah, people ask us those hard hitting questions. They talk about how supporting. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many times we do like a public, you know, presentation, and it's you know it's the the, the non the non believers who speak up. You know, they're the people who are like
0: the most vocal.
1: Yeah, we we get asked a lot of times of like, well, how many people do you serve? And I'm like, over two hundred a year. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, you know, do you want me to pull up our grant numbers? Like. We're a business, we're not a business, we're, you know, we're an agency here that provides services and we've been here for over 40 years. We are a needed service. I don't know how else to tell you that. Our doors are still open.
2: Yeah, and there's a reason. And these spaces for these people didn't always exist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they're needed.
0: Well, we're in an interesting day where I think most people acknowledge that this is happening Mm -hmm. and acknowledge that it is a problem. But that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go back. A couple of decades, you go back a hundred years, yeah. mm-hmm. good luck, try- what, oh, somebody did something to you? Okay. Yeah. What, yeah, go sorry. on about your day, which, ha- I mean, looking at it from our lens, which is a challenge to do because culture changes, society changes, people change, it's, it's just almost crazy to look back. But I mean, you go back a couple hundred years and people were just slaughtering each other, so yeah. it's, not that, it's not that much of a jump that this would be happening mm-hmm. as well.
1: Like I said, when we do tabling, because last summer we did a lot of uh, networking at like farmer's markets. So we'd go to all of the the rural and local farmer's markets. And we had people who were, I want to say, between the ages of like 70 and 80. And we would have multiple people come up every time and they would share that they experienced assault when they were, you know, 12, 14, 16. And they never told anybody or they told their, you know. They told their parent, but it didn't go anywhere. And they said, like, there wasn't a service like you around. And I'm really thankful that you guys are here. Um, and they're like, I would have really benefited from talking to somebody like you. And we always say, like, you know, our doors are always open. It doesn't matter when that assault occurred, you can always connect with us. And they're like, no, I'm okay now, or those kinds of things. But it's, I always have to tell people when we go to go table, I'm like, prepare to do like three crisis interventions at the table. So we always like to have two people there so somebody can, you know, navigate handing out swag and like the fun conversations of like yeah we're here um and then people coming up and disclosing we also have people who just like don't make eye contact with us which is great where they see our you know north coast rape crisis team and they look at their table and they're like not here yeah i'm gonna um, go the
0: opposite yeah, direction yeah. steer clear just yeah blocking. or like they don't
1: like their kids near our table and i'm like we have bubbles <laughs> we have coloring pages they're like no no
0: yeah it's kind of nice that you guys can tag team that Say, okay, I'm gonna handle this one. You you do the education, then we'll swap. Everything's (laughs) everything's gonna be copacetic. Mm -hmm. It's the parenting thing worries me in some regards because the idea that you would go tell your parent that this happened to you, and then for whatever reason, maybe there's the inclination to diminish it or Mm -hmm. kind of brush it aside, which is an understandable thing, because if you're a parent and your kid comes and says, hey something not that great happened, especially if it's a family member or somebody that obviously is close to the child,
2: mm-hmm.
0: to acknowledge that and and figure out a way to move through it would be crippling. Obviously for the child, but for the parent as well, knowing that you were the guardian of this person mm-hmm. and this is your kid, this is your flesh and blood, this is your child, and this thing happened right under your nose. and now if you acknowledge that you almost have to take on some of the guilt of i something I went something went wrong yeah, yeah which you didn't really but
1: yeah no. but guilt, that's
0: how you would feel yeah. i mean mm-hmm. it, i don't have kids but I, that mm-hmm. would be crippling to me if that came to light or something like that happened
1: yeah it's hard like, that guilt eats you alive and so i think for a lot of times especially for parents it's that like that culpability of, I, I let my kid down, so if I, if I don't address this, it didn't happen, maybe, or, you know, especially when harm happens to really young kids, like three and under, there's also this preconceived notion that they won't remember what happened to them, so it's not going to affect them. Or if we don't talk about it, they're not going to remember. But like, our bodies hold memories, so they might not have, you know, the, the visual memory, but there's also that, you know, that harm still manifests throughout somebody's life, that trauma still is being carried. Um And so there's also, we see that, especially with like really young kids where they're like, well, thankfully they're not going to remember this. And we're like, it might play out differently Oh, Odds aren't
0: that great that it's yeah. not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it might
2: manifest in a different way, but.
1: Yeah, like, sorry to break that bubble, but.
0: The don't talk about it thing is insane.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to I was going to note too, like uh, a little off topic, but also like when, you know, those people are going to their parents, you know, a lot of times there is that um, that culture of like blaming or like, oh, why were you there? Why were you out drinking? Like, what were you wearing? That type of thing. And so as far as those barriers, you know, like we were talking about earlier to reporting is like if the first person you tell is like questioning you about these things that really don't matter because we know you know, hundred percent of the responsibilities on that person choosing to uh do harm. It's like I don't know. The parents I we uh we do our services are available to parents too. And so we do, you know, like do some like light like, hey, um this might be a better way to say this or um this is more like trauma informed uh ways ways to speak or whatever. So I think that can be a um a really big challenge too.
1: Yeah. Which is hard because a lot of these parents, especially of teens, the the initial kind of gut like, well, why did you go there? You didn't tell me you were going there. It's not from that place of like victim blaming. So you talk to them and they're like, you know, they're connecting them with us. They're wanting them to get into counseling, Mm -hmm. all these other things. But that first response was of, you know, panic. Mm -hmm. So you ask those questions. It's kind of like second nature. Like, where were you? What were you doing? You know, how did this happen? And it's coming from a place of, you know, fear. Right. I couldn't protect you. Where were you? Where were you at? What were you doing? But it also comes off, especially victim blaming for somebody who has just just went through a traumatic event and Mm -hmm. they're already afraid to tell their parents, especially those who are like out at a party or, you know, snuck out of their house. And so they're like, well, if I tell my parents, I'm going to get in trouble. And that's also a big like navigation we do, especially with teens of, you know, and with parents because the parents will be like, well, you know, she's grounded and her phone's taken away because She snuck out of my house and Mm -hmm. stole my alcohol, and that's not allowed. And then this assault happened. Yeah,
2: yeah, I love how you named it. It doesn't always come from, like, a bad place. Like, they're Mm -hmm. trying to do their best. but
1: Yeah, but that gut reaction of, like, where were you? What were you doing? You know, that's inevitable. I I still hold those, like, you know, my niece goes off and does something or those kinds of things. She gets hurt. I'm like, well, where were you? What were you doing? And she was like, I was just down the street on my scooter, and I'm like, okay, okay.
0: (laughs) is that is that a challenge walking the line of victim blaming because in some regards you do want parents to teach their kids hey don't especially young daughters i would imagine you would want to teach them hey don't walk by yourself late at night Mm -hmm. and there's this weird or not necessarily weird but this there's this dichotomy of people who think in teaching your kids that that is problematic that you shouldn't we shouldn't live in a society like that we shouldn't have to prime our kids to be cautious but Mm -hmm. then there's the other side of well that's the society we live in for better or worse right now in this point in time that's the reality of our world and so Mm -hmm. we should teach our kids to be careful and be cautious and look out for these warning signs because there's a reason Mm -hmm. that if you end up in one of those situations something might happen yeah and that obviously after the fact is is victim blaming but before it's it's precautionary Mm -hmm. and is that a challenge trying to walk that so it's not victim blaming or mm-hmm. is it all situational dependent on if it happened before so, or if it happened after
1: yeah so in our so we do one one to two week like rape prevention education programs in high schools primarily like freshman seminar classes like health classes um and we talk about like risk management so like risk versus responsibility because there is risky behavior that can elevate you know violence that or like elevate the opportunity for violence so if somebody's you know out walking at night by themselves those kinds of things like where's your where's your risk at and so then navigating the tools of like when we're out doing risky behavior or when there's risks present you know how to you know keep a mindful eye on things so like if you're out at a party with your friends how can we kind of navigate safety within that because you get to go out with your friends you get to go out to parties you get to you know live your life and sneak out of your house and be 16. Like you get to live your life and within living your life, there's risk. And there are things that can elevate that risk or can elevate the opportunity for harm. Um, But without those monopolizing on those vulnerabilities, there wouldn't be that harm. But that harm exists and the harm is going to continue to exist. So how can we navigate these risks safely? So we talk about having a buddy system, you know, bringing your own drinks, you know, just really like safe partying tips, safe, safe navigations, knowing where you're going, you know, keeping, you know, if you're going to go for a walk late at night, maybe not listen with noise canceling headphones and like wearing all black or, you know, those kinds of things. So like navigating how to live your life with these risks as safe as we can Mm -hmm. and as proactive as we can. So like having those safety measures for ourselves, like I, you know, like many young twenty-year-olds, I was on like dating apps and different things like that. And so I had friends who had my location. I would tell people where I was going via like the address and send a photo of the person I was meeting up with. You know, and those are just I was doing risky behavior. Not gonna lie to that. Um, but I was doing proactive safety tips around it. So if anything, if anything happened, there's this kind of like safety net. So we try to navigate like having a safety net because you get to be risky part of
0: the fun well that's the crazy (laughs) thing is most people most kids are going to engage in risky behavior Mm -hmm. i think we can all we can all acknowledge that i'm sitting here Mm -hmm. that's just part of growing up fortunately or unfortunately you do these things and then you learn from them Mm -hmm. hopefully you (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) hopefully it ends well and you you have these experiences and most of them are positive and then you grow up and kind of course alters and you've learned these things but Looking back, I mean, at least speaking for myself, looking back, it's almost absurd that some of the situations I have been in and made it through because mm-hmm. you put yourself in risky situations. <laughs> and looking back, you have the hindsight to say, Wow,
1: that was risky. probably
0: shouldn't have been there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was yeah. not the best call, but not everybody makes it through. That's the mm-hmm. crazy part.
1: Yeah. You could have, you know, you go to a party, there's 20 so people there, and one person experiences harm. Mm-hmm. You know, the other 18 people are unscathed. I mean, right. I'm not counting the person who, you know, of the harm, um, but the other eighteen people, they're living yeah. their life as a normal Friday.
0: No problems. No, yeah. problems. they made it through. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So and you and there's never you can't there's not like you open the door one day to go out and you're like tonight's the night you know there's never probably stay home tonight. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You probably wouldn't go out if you knew that you know if there was a you know a note delivered on your doorstep saying if you go to this party tonight yeah. bad X Y Z is going to happen yeah. you most likely would not go.
2: Yeah, and it can be hard for uh, survivors to really feel like. Not having guilt or feeling like it was their fault in any way, when it we know that it's not their fault in any way, even if they were doing, you know, risky things. um But that is that is something that some people have a hard time understanding. Like, hey, it's still not your fault. Well,
0: the randomness of it all is, I think, what would trip, understandably, trip people up mm-hmm. because, especially if you go to the same party with a group of friends and it happened to you and it didn't happen to your friends, well, what? <laughs>
1: What? What are the why? Yeah, why? Why I would be
2: yeah. Why am I the one? Yeah, really confusing. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we know that it, like, more often than not, is in people's own homes or someone's house they know. Mm -hmm. So, um, feeling like that's a safe space too can be really like can really throw someone off. You know, that's terrifying. The
0: fact that a lot of it is perpetrated by people that are close to you or family members Mm -hmm. is terrifying. I don't know if it would be better or worse if there were just a bunch of random people perpetrating this? I don't know if that would be. Because <laughs> right, right. Yeah. then you have the scary thought of, oh man, everyone, Anyone everyone is dangerous. But people but... feel
1: that anyway. Yeah. People yeah. feel that anyway. It's always that like stranger in the bush. When it, like, reality, I think it's like 85% of assaults happen from somebody that you know. Yeah. So like a, a close friend. Somebody, like a friend of a friend. Yeah. Or, you know, At a casual least an acquaintance. an acquaintance
2: like majority of the
0: time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody in your vicinity. Yeah.
1: yeah. And especially for minors. Yeah. It's almost always somebody that they know. Or who has access to them, like a family friend, coach, you know, friend's older brother, cousin. That's hard.
0: That's terrifying. Well, and it's, I and mean, and it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. Really, yeah. And then
1: like thinking of, I'm not a parent, um, uh-huh. but thinking of like as a parent, the people who you allow to your close to your kid are people uh-huh. that you trust, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're gonna have somebody babysitter watch your kid, you're gonna trust them. And so that betrayal, that extra layer of betrayal and guilt. Yeah. for that parent of like I let my kid, you know, be watched by this person or around this person or stay the night at this person's house or, you know. Well,
0: yeah. I think that plays into why someone might be more inclined to diminish what happened. Mm-hmm. Not even intentionally mm-hmm. or consciously, but just through their actions is because of that dynamic of yeah. well, it was somebody that I trusted so how, especially if it's a family member. I mean, that's
2: just mm-hmm. That's a whole other can <laughs> of worms. Yeah. 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 Yeah, having, um, like, new nieces and nephews in my family and then uh, recently, like, knowing more of the statistics about this, is I'm really like, whoa, like, okay, I don't have kids, but i am got to look out for these other kids because I know what happens.
0: See, how do you balance that? How do you become so overcorrected where now everybody is this Unwatched. potential <laughs> enemy? Yeah, or potential... <laughs> bad actor in all of this right it's
2: good like knowledge is power right like knowing knowing things is important but um me like just speaking for myself I am uh very good at like unplugging when I get home from work and not thinking about work like I want to do other stuff like but I know Mm -hmm. I know that it's easy to get stuck in like having that on your mind all the time and really like having a hard time separating those things but at least for me uh now I'm really good at separating those and that's uh very important.
1: Yeah. I think like my my niece is 3 years old. So she's really young and just having the conversations of one what is consent? Because it's not just in the sexual purview, it's also like well did you let this person play with your toy or like, you know those kinds of things. So like having the ongoing conversation of like what's okay for you and what's not okay. Um and that we don't hold sec- like secrets. And like like what is a secret? And like those kinds of conversations too, of just like navigating if there is harm, somebody feeling safe to one communicate that, being open to hearing it. And also like naming like, Oh, I believe you in this, or you know, those kinds of things. And I also, you know, she knows the names of her private parts. She knows the names of what a vagina is. She At knows... three years old. Mm-hmm. You have those conversations because when you go to the doctor and you get checked out and they're looking at your, you know, your vagina or different things like that, that's a language that adults use. And so if somebody else comes in and calls it something else and she says, you know, I went and they, you know, tickled my poo or whatever it is, you know, those kinds of things. If she said that to me, I wouldn't know what that means. And so her having the name, I mean, she doesn't say it, you know, I got to go pee or, you know, I got to she uses other verbiage on a day to day. But she knows what they are and she knows that her brother has a penis Um, and she knows that they both have butts and like those kinds of things. So, I mean, it's not that like serious anatomy talk at that age, but it's they know what these names are and how it like with other adults and those kinds of things and what a safe touch is and what an unsafe touch is. Um, She is obsessed with baby dolls, so she knows all about diapers. She loves her little cousin. Um, And so that's the other thing of like oh she peed in her diaper I need to like wipe her vagina make sure it's all clean you know those kinds of conversations are happening of the normalization of it all so if somebody else came in outside of our family or someone within our family said or did anything to like say otherwise because he's even said at school like you know well, this person calls it this or this or things like that. And she's like, I told them those are called boobies and not a chest or like those kinds of things. So, I mean, she's using it in like the day-to-day, but like Makai like said, knowledge is power. And so having that verbiage and knowing what the anatomy is and knowing what a safe touch is and what an unsafe touch is and how you feel when somebody gives you a touch. I also never expect a hug from her. And I let her know if you don't want to give somebody a hug, if you don't want to give somebody a kiss, you don't have to. You know, and you can still love that person and you still like that person, but you don't have to show that person physical affection because that's also very, you know, that's something that's placed on kids a lot of the time. And so that also blurs body boundaries. So if somebody doesn't feel safe with somebody or somebody causes harm and that's the obligation that we have to give physical touch to adults, that also is like a way to kind of navigate harm.
0: A dangerous social primer. Yeah, it is.
1: I mean, I remember as a little kid going to family events and being like, you have to give every aunt, uncle, and who was it, like a hug and a kiss on the cheek. It was an obligation. It wasn't a choice. And so letting her know that she has a choice, that she doesn't have to give anybody, you know, the time of day if she doesn't want to, or a physical touch. It's empowering as a young person to know that you have choices.
0: Do you guys buy into the argument that In teaching kids these things and in holding these things in schools, especially as you go down the chain from high school to middle school and younger, that in some regard, we're almost priming kids to be sexual? Or do you think this is a necessary evolution of where we are in society that we have to teach kids this because of the circumstances going on? Or is it like a chicken or the egg situation? I mean, because the the sexually Mm -hmm. priming kids is a huge I, you could say cultural argument today in, in mm-hmm. a ton of different regards.
2: Yeah, yeah like the media, for example, yeah. like definitely uh, young people are over sexualized, like in things that we see, you know, like certain like movies or um, just like ad campaigns for Everyday clothing life. or, yeah, <laughs> yeah just like, everything, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I would say,
1: especially for like young, young kids and, and like through media, they're already ingesting that and viewing that. When I first started doing prevention work, I went into preschools in middle, and I went through, it was, we had a pre-K through fourth grade program where we talked about like the main premise was like, no, go tell. You get to say no from somebody. You get to go away from anyone who makes you feel unsafe and you get to tell a trusted adult. And in that program, we talked about the names of our body parts and our private parts. And the hard thing is that these kids are already being primed for abuse abuse has been happening for years. I think creating a space to talk about this harm and letting people know that it's okay to talk about, I think that's kind of where the shift is happening because the harm has has been happening and it's continued to happen. That those numbers aren't changing that we're seeing, but being able to have the conversation about it, you know, that opens the door because for a lot of families, don't talk about it. In the classroom, usually you don't talk about it. And so if somebody's coming in and talking about harm, and it might not be directly what you experienced, but you're like, that made me feel unsafe. Because what is unsafe making me feel like? I feel anxious. I feel antsy. You know, that doesn't feel like uh, that wasn't a safe secret. Um, it might connect in with a kid who outside of our, our program or another program coming in, wouldn't have the opportunity to talk about it because the harm may have already happened, but they were maybe shut down at the family level or they didn't feel safe to talk to a safe adult or that harm is happening from a caregiver. And so coming in and breaking kind of that third wall of, you know, this harm does happen to kids. And I think it also makes children a lot more empathetic thinking about the harm that might happen to somebody else, even if they haven't experienced that. Because we, I mean after COVID coming into a freshman classroom, those kids didn't, the social norms were completely stripped. And so there were jokes being made. It it felt like I was walking into a classroom in 2007. It literally felt like I was like, is this 2021 right now? Um, I was like, this feels like when I was in middle school. You know, the, 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 the slander that was being said, you know, the victim blaming statements that were being said, you know. And so reconstructing back into consent culture, talking about consent, talking about this harm because the harm's happening. The harm is being ingested and like all of this other stuff. These kids are learning from peers. And so coming in and naming, you know, these are these are the facts. This is this is what consent looks like. This is what a sexual assault might look like. This is how harm looks. I mean, we go into high schools and we talk about, you know, teen dating violence. And like different forms of abuse. And you can see the wheels turning for these kids. Cause I mean, blowing up somebody's phone, we talk about coercion. When somebody says no the first time and you blow up their phone and texting them over and over and over again until they feel like they can't say no and they send you a photo, or you tell somebody, if you don't send me a photo, I'm going to tell your parents, you know, that you snuck out the other night, blackmailing somebody, you know, forms of abuse, you know, blocking somebody from, Leaving a space is false imprisonment. For some kids, that's so crazy to think. Cause like if you're in a car in an argument with your partner and they lock the door and they say, you're not leaving until this conversation is done, whether you're done with the conversation or not, that's abuse. And so you can see kind of these, you know, the wheels turning because the teens are learning from teens. And so if your friend is going through something similar and you're looking for them f- for advice, they're like, that's normal. That just means he loves you. And we're like, oh, no. Red
0: flag. Yeah, red flag.
1: No. You know, and so like it's kind of breaking down that one, bring, bringing up self-love. What is our worth? What do we want in a relationship? What are green flags? What do we like to see? What do you want in a relationship? Good humor, great communication. freedom to go hang out with your friends. You know, and reaffirming those kinds of ide- I- ideals that, you know, this person deserves to have a life outside of their relationship. And so there'll be literal, you know, couples in our classes and they're like sitting on each other's laps in a class. And I'm like, separation's an okay thing. You don't have to be connected at the hip. And we talk about boundaries and how if one person has power in this relationship, how that can manifest in a different harm and how it slowly trickles into harm and how it's, you know, The harm that's shown in movies is also dramatized. They don't talk about like the slow build of first it's, you know, controlling who you're texting or who you're hanging out with or hanging out outside, you know, waiting for you to get done with practice, not having time to separate. And then it, you know, manifests into a different harm. And then maybe it's verbal abuse. Maybe, you know, that emotional hold. Maybe you're isolated. Maybe, you know, every time you go and hang out with your friend and your friends are noticing a difference in you. And so they're saying, you know, I don't like, you know, you're since you've been dating him, like you don't hang out with us anymore. I notice a change in you, and you go back and tell your partner that. And they're like, Well, do, these people aren't your friends. Like, don't you love me? Don't you want to hang out with me? Like, if your friends loved you, they'd want to see you happy. Don't I make you happy?
0: The manipulation aspect of it it's, gets dicey, and sometimes it's it's a it can be a really gray area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I dated this girl one time, and she love to fight, but she fought in a very toxic way where she mm-hmm. would want you to like block like almost block the door and like stay there and like do mm-hmm. this big grandiose exaggeration of I'm yeah. fighting for you and she would mm-hmm. storm off and want you to chase after her. And that shit is exhausting. Yeah. Trying to first off fill that role but then realizing oh this is a, a ridiculous way to work through a problem like what are we what is happening we're just running into the wall but that's kind of what you want is that whole play of mm-hmm. oh do this thing and, and fight, fight for me yeah <laughs> fight for and me. it's how incredibly toxic is that to go through
1: yeah well and also thinking if that's not your way of having an argument like well it shouldn't
0: so be want anybody's to- way that's, exactly. that's exactly. not, that's not that the ideal way to have, have an argument, argument <laughs> that's like <laughs> Textbook 101, if this is happening, there's a problem. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and it's like we talk about like mutual toxicity because some people they feed off of each other. They might love each other so hard one day, and then the next day it's like they're they fight tooth and nail, and that's how they they like their relationship. And so, like, we're sitting there and I'm like, 216, I'm like, you guys shouldn't be fighting like this. No one should be fighting like this, you know? Like, it's such a hard way also to like break it down to them of like, this isn't right. You creating or like you working up this situation to the point of like, it's a like a verbal altercation. So like we also change like the language of like, that's a fight, that's an altercation. Like that's abuse. You know, nobody need, should be yelled at in, a, in an argument. I mean, I understand like raising your voice or different things like that. But if you're full blown, like spit flying in each other's faces, like maybe that's a time to take a break. And how can, before it gets to that point, Take a break before then and like have a do you feel like you can communicate? Because for a lot of people, it's like I, I don't feel like I'm listened to until it's at that point. Like I have to be at my breaking point to be heard, which then it's breaking down like healthy communication. How do you communicate with people? You know, it's just all of these. It's also like if you're if you grew up in a toxic household, if that's what you saw
0: then what, that's what you emulate. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you know what a healthy relationship is if you've never seen one in your life?
1: Mm-hmm. No, this is how my parents do it out. So This, this must is, be this love. Make, this yeah. is what
0: love looks like. It's people screaming at each other and storming mm-hmm. out and slamming doors. This is love. So mm-hmm. in order to feel like you love me, I need to start experiencing some of that. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you pull yourself out of that rabbit hole? I mean, it, yeah. in some ways, it's almost like you have to go through that to recognize it, but nobody wants to go through that. Nobody wants anybody they love to go through that. I mean, it's.
1: It's hard. I mean, I've, I've been doing this work since I was 19. So I, I saw a lot of my, my friends and myself go through like toxic relationships, even holding all of this information and doing this work. I've been in toxic relationships. I've been in domestic violence relationships, doing this work, actively going out on a, like, a scene and talking to somebody and then walking away and being like, oh, this is what's happening to me. Not great. Not great. Not a good feeling to sit in. Like going into a classroom and talking about abuse and then like walking away and being like, maybe I'm going through that.
0: Yeah, having that (laughs) light bulb moment. Oh, maybe some of this applies to
2: me right now. Is
1: that, can that be? Yeah, and so it's, it's so, it's so easy to get wrapped up, especially in like domestic violence relationships or like infant partner violence. It's, it feels like like a trickle. It's so easy to get swept up in that love. And especially when you're like 16. And it's so hard to see, like as somebody on the outside, even like with your friends on the outside being like, this is a toxic relationship, but I want to support my friend. And if I tell my friend straight out, like you need to leave this relationship, this isn't good. She might never talk to me again until she's you know this relationship or something really bad happens. I've had to cut friends off because they're in toxic relationships and abusive relationships. And, you know, they would call me in the middle of the night and be like, can you come and pick me up? And I'd come and pick them up and they would stay at my house and we'd problem solve. And then three days later, back at it again.
0: Nothing changes.
1: Nothing changes. And so I literally had to like, I had to set that boundary because if they knew that they could access me and get out of that situation, no matter what fight took place, and they left. They were, going to, they were going to come back because they knew that I was going to be there in case something bad happened again. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because I knew that person was still experiencing harm. I knew that relationship, surprisingly, was not going to get better after the 15th time. Um, and I had to sit there and say, I can't do this. I can't watch you hurt yourself like this. This person's hurting you, but, like, you have an opportunity to not go back in that space and I can't watch you do that again I can't and eventually she got out of that relationship and now she has a really great happy life with like three kids and is like doing all these great things I'm super proud of her but it took like her figuring that out for herself and she thanked me later because I thought I was making one of like the biggest mistakes of my life and she thanked me like two years later saying like thank you for doing that because like Her mom already shut that door on her. Other people in her life already shut that door on her. And I was just, you know, like in that place of like, this person needs a space. Like, I'm going to do that. But, you know, her partner broke like the taillight on my car. All of these other things. Like the abuse bled into our friendship, our lives. You know, he threatened me. He came to my house. You know, and I'm like, at what point is this going to cross the line for you? Because my line being crossed. <laughs> my line <laughs> is being crossed and then jumped back over multiple times. So it, it takes until like reaching that point for themselves as well that they're worth leaving that relationship. Because on average, you know, with domestic violence relationships, it takes upwards of seven times leaving for that person to actually like leave that relationship, which is so hard to think about. And I, I mean, if she had kids with this person, if they owned a home together, you know, all of those other factors – what would that have looked like? Because if she would have gotten pregnant with this person, I guarantee she'd probably still be with him.
0: Well, how many people get wrapped up in that? They Mm -hmm. just, they get into this not great relationship and then have a kid and that's now your life. Yeah. you are now in this relationship.
1: Yeah. Whether you're with that person trying to, trying to make it work, trying to make a family um, or having to co-parent with an extremely toxic, abusive person for 18 years. Yeah. (laughs) Or the rest of your life. Yeah. Rest
0: of your life. (laughs) Really. And I'm a firm believer that people can't see that until they're ready to see it. Because yes. I think everybody's been there where you have, you're have you either in it yourself or you have a friend and you, it just doesn't click. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're saying, whatever they're saying to you, it's just not passing through that that barrier. And mm-hmm. then like your friend a couple of years later, maybe you finally wake up, but it doesn't happen through people telling you, hey, Mm-mm. this is a problem, which is insane. Because mm-hmm. if it was anything else, if you were driving a car and you kept crashing it, <laughs> you'd be able to recognize oh
1: maybe you shouldn't drive (laughs) yeah maybe i shouldn't drive or maybe i need to
0: readdress how i'm driving or relearn Mm -hmm. how to drive but with relationships you can just keep hitting that wall and go right back to it Mm -hmm. and say nope this time and there's a promise of change yeah that weird disconnect where you can just put on blinders and say this is going to be the time Mm -hmm. it's going to work yeah there are these red flags but the highs are so high that
2: it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And within those really abusive relationships, like you brought up earlier, trauma bonding is a real thing. And mm-hmm. when you're in that, um, you know, you hold on to those like little like, maybe it's like someone give, is like love bombs you and then it's abusive and then you hold on to like the small amount of good things or whatever. But yeah. You're just you're, grasping at strokes. Yeah, yeah. Literally, <laughs> yeah. But your brain is really like, uh, you know, trauma it's bonding to this other person mm-hmm. because it's so abusive you know and obviously that's not every situation like you but know, even can if be it's toxic not, without that yeah even mm-hmm. if it's
0: not abusive the trauma bonding and then you stack on the isolation aspect where mm-hmm. oh yeah. you need to stop talking to these people and then it's pretty soon it's just you too yep yeah. and then who do you go to because right. your friends maybe they've been cut off because your partner didn't like them yeah. or maybe they like you yeah. said hey i can't I can't sit by and watch you get mm-hmm. hurt. And yeah. then it's just you yeah. two and it almost
2: builds the system. They're of, well, everything, now we have to be together. They're everything yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah.
0: you're mm-hmm. all I have left. Yep. So now I guess we're just going to find a way or just <laughs> go at this together, burn it together. Mm-hmm. Go down in flames. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Nobody understands us. You know, they just don't we get love it. too hard. <laughs> that one, like. It's so it's domestic violence is so intricate. And, I mean, we, we connect with survivors on, like, the sexualized violence end, which is usually always interconnected as, like, a power and control tool within that. But when people usually come forward regarding domestic violence, that's one of the last things that they disclose is the sexualized violence mm-hmm. because it's so intimate. And there's also the stigma of that it is an obligation when you're in a relationship to be intimate with somebody. And so sexual assault doesn't exist when you're married to somebody or you're in a relationship, which is completely un- untrue. Um, but that's what a lot of people are one told by their partner, where you know, you're my girlfriend, you have to do this. Um, and then it's also just re-rebuilding basic needs. When somebody leaves a relationship like that, it's it's re like rebuilding, you know, their own trust in themselves. This person is so broken down where they don't they can't trust their decisions. And so making that decisions for themselves, figuring out, you know, if they live together, housing, all of these other kind of like basic fundamental needs and then it's that like emotional healing is coming up like second which is hard
0: not to switch gears here Mm -hmm. but i was listening to you talk about that and listening to our whole conversation i would make the uninformed claim that probably most of the people coming to you guys are women do you think that's true yeah yes yeah (laughs) That's another crazy dynamic in all of this, right, is that the stigma and just the reality of if you're a guy and this has happened to you, especially if it's another guy that perpetrated mm-hmm. it onto you, would you just carry that shit to the ground? Like, how does that pan out? Yeah, How so do you get through to those guys? Yeah, because, yeah. you
2: know, harm does happen to everybody. Sexual violence happens to every. Person, You know, like every not every person, but like every, um, you know, gender, whatever, ethnicity, sexual orientation, everybody like in uh, those groups, like there are people who experience that harm. And like as far as like barriers, I think there is, you know, uh, even more of a stigma of like, uh, you know, male identifying people not coming forward uh, to talk about because all those things we already discussed, like, um, you know, that. Guys always want it. Or um, you know, like if it is another guy, you know, like, oh, you're just, you know, like this is your sexual orientation now or yeah. well, what if you're a straight guy and this happens to you? I mean, how right. do you how that, do you work through that?
1: That's a lot of barriers, right? There's there's a stigma around male identified survivors. One, because there's a stigma that all males are perpetrators. And so when somebody experiences harm, especially in a movement that doesn't support male survivors they're less likely to come forward that's just the reality when we talk about like gender stereotypes and like the norms around like masculine behavior that like guys always want to have sex that they can't be perceived to be weak um or if they're assaulted by somebody of the same gender identity so if it's like male on male um that that stigma of like homophobia if i come forward is are is people going to believe me or are they going to say that i'm gay or all of these kind of other things that the, bar- the same barriers apply for like when, when somebody who is female identifying comes forward. Those same barriers are also on males plus more. And so it also doesn't help that majority of the time that men experience sexual assault it's usually child sexual abuse. And it's also usually from somebody that they love and somebody who has access to them and it's usually male and so there's also those kind of like all of these dynamics that are at play and you know same being said when a, like a female makes a report to law enforcement the the ask is usually they don't want a male identified officer and so for a, a male going to make a it, make a report and it's a another male officer looking at them they're feeling that kind of like shame that that guilt that you know uncomfortability that embarrassment and is the amount of reports that are mailed from male survivors are so low because of these stigmas. It's not that the harm's not happening. Um, it's happening at a, at a lesser rate than female identified folks, but that's also not, you know, con- putting into fact like the LGBTQIA2S plus community. You know, there is this minority where harm happens at an elevated level, not just from those who are in that community, but also from straight people doing, give, doing assaults on people who are not in the same. You know, the elevation of harm is so much higher, but the reporting is so much lower and the access to services is so much lower because of stigma.
0: Well, and you have that double-edged sword, like you said, where if you're a guy and it's a guy that perpetrated it, you have that set of stigma of, oh, are you gay
1: now? Like, Mm -hmm. what?
0: And then, if it's a girl that perpetrated it, you have oh, some girl wanted to have sex with you, yeah. okay, you big got deal someone. yeah, big deal it. what right. you got laid, yeah. okay,
1: mhm, or especially if it's like uh like a female on male, well couldn't you overpower her, couldn't you fight her off, or even same if it's a male on male well, didn't you fight like you know, especially if somebody's like uh well, you're like you're like six foot, you know, like you, you could totally like pound something like you could beat somebody up, like why didn't you do that so also really isolating in the sense of like if you have a trauma response in that situation because if it's somebody that you know let's say it's a casual acquaintance and they're female and you don't you know want to be intimate that person you know forces you that's sexual assault you might not i don't know deck that person in the face that might not be your first response of like get get off of me it's the same as anybody experiences an assault you could freeze you could you know There are so many other elements that come regarding trauma that it's so hard to, like, place that blame on somebody of, like, oh, why didn't you fight back? Or you could overpower this person. Like, this person was still afraid. This person is still processing what's going on. For a lot of times, especially with, like, sexual assault, the reaction time is so, like, slow because you're kind of just processing, what the hell is happening?
0: Yeah, what's going on right (laughs) now? What's going on
1: right now? Is this really happening? Because, again, it's, it's usually somebody that you know. So you're like, is this person really doing this right now? And it's the same for male identified people than it is females. I don't remember
2: the exact statistic, but a really high percentage of people who experience like rape um, experience tonic immobility, where literally their um, survival instinct, like their biological reaction is they can't move. Is that just because it's so traumatic?
1: It's the same as like if you experience like a car crash like that same like it's it's trauma and so you know you see it with like um people like in active combat mm-hmm. um so it is that trauma and then it's also like our mind trying to protect ourselves like our minds are super uh like ingrained and in trying to other animals ourselves. too we mm-hmm. see that
2: there's videos of like other um like i don't know uh it was like I don't know what kind of animals it was. That I Possums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an example.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's like a, that's a trauma response. It's also um, we hear from a lot of people too who do like say, like self defense or like self defense measures um, that like you can have these tools in your toolkit, but if something happens and there's harm happening, our our like lizard brain, for like lack of a better right. like word, yeah. like it comes into play. Like our primal instincts are the ones that come forward.
0: Survival mode. Mm-hmm. Well, fight or flight, right?
1: Yeah. And so when we talk a lot of, a lot, because one of the things, especially with like victim blaming is like, why didn't you fight back? Or like, why didn't you yell? Why didn't you kick scream? Mm -hmm. Or those kinds of things. And like somebody could be like that tonic immobility so overcome with fear that their mind shuts down. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're mentally present, but they're not there. So like dissociation comes into play. And it also might not be safe for that person to fight back. If I came, if somebody tried to assault me and they were, let's say like six, five and jacked, am I going to win that fight? No, because that person would potentially take my life or harm me worse.
2: Yeah, and it's an uncontrollable thing that happens. So, you know, um, like Kira was talking about, um, you know, how we kind of like say that to some or like when somebody is feeling guilt for like not fighting back. Mm -hmm. What we tell them, which is true, is like your body did what it could Mm -hmm. um, to keep you alive.
1: Yeah, you did everything you could in that moment to survive. Yeah, You're here talking to us today. And we're able to have a conversation. You were able to survive that situation, regardless if you physically protected yourself in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Self defense sometimes is going along with it. That's survival, because if let's say you fight back, that elevation of harm can make you way higher. You don't know if this person has a gun, a knife, or whatever. Um, but your elevation, like you did whatever you could in that moment to survive, and we want to like enhance that of like you did protect yourself. Mm-hmm. You're here. Yep. You know, it might not feel like, you know, I didn't, I didn't lay a punch, that kind of thing, but you did protect yourself. Whatever you had to do mentally mm-hmm. to protect yourself. So like if, even if sometimes like people, a lot of times people dissociate during an assault.
0: That's the biggest one, right? You could mm-hmm. a lot.
1: Yeah, people can where they're literally seeing this assault from a view like over themselves. That's survival.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Your mind literally said, you cannot be here right now. So you, you survived. That's the simple. You survived. It doesn't feel good a lot of the times. There's always these what-ifs that's part of the victim-blame culture, all of those things. But survival looks different for so many people. And that's why trauma responses are so different for everybody. Because if somebody's experienced assault maybe multiple times in their lifetime, and then they experience another assault— Somebody might be, you know, might have a different trauma response. Maybe the first time they fought back and they were beaten. And so the second time they experienced an assault, they're going along with it because they don't want to be beaten, even if it's a different perpetrator.
2: Yeah. And I think that kind of highlights the importance of talking um, more about like, you know, teaching people not to do these things instead of like, oh, self-defense, carry this pepper spray. And like, oh, of course, like all those things aren't bad things to do, right? It can like uh prevent things right but the real important thing is like preventing someone from deciding to do this to cause this harm
0: i'll be honest i've never really been a fan of that side of the argument i understand one of the things i've always heard is that we need to raise boys to be better men and that Mm -hmm. kind of irks me in some ways i understand where they're coming from when they say that part of me feels like they're just diminishing the female perpetrator side, Mm -hmm. part of me is upset because it's not good men that are perpetrating these things. Like it's not people that are being raised upright that are doing this. It's not an educational Mm -hmm. thing. People know that rape is wrong. So it's not, we need to raise better Mm -hmm. men. We have better men. It's that bad people do bad things. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we're just going to, through education or through, through these institutions, just going to raise a new generation of men that are just above this is kind of absurd in some regard because we have good men that don't do this and we have bad people that do bad things like that's just a mm-hmm. reality of where we are in society i think a better stance would be yeah train i would raise i will raise my daughter i mean i hope she'll do mma i hope she'll be in these <laughs> classes i want i think every girl should carry a gun be protective or at least carry pepper spray i mean it's unfortunate it goes back to that thing where it's unfortunate that we are in a society where we might have to take these precautions, but we are also in a society where you have to take these precautions. So rather than hope the world just becomes a better place, yes, we can work towards that. But rather than just hope that happens, maybe we do take these steps. Maybe we train girls to fight so that they can protect themselves and they feel more confident. Maybe we should definitely train men to fight too. Because if you're a guy and you can carry yourself, maybe you're more inclined to intervene. Maybe it you work through some things that might have led you down a path where you become a bully because you have these repressed things. I don't know, but uh, yeah, you I should be
2: preventative. I don't think like yeah. one is bad and the other's I think like both are can be useful things, right? Like yeah. more education, better, right? Yeah. And then like also, you know, if you're doing these things to protect yourself, that's also something that could be useful.
0: I just have a problem mm-hmm. with that idea going on a rant there for a little bit. <laughs> but I have a problem with the idea that it's just going to be solved by raising better men. I think mm-hmm. the again i get the sentiment i just think the message there is a little misplaced i don't think that's how we solve this problem if we can solve it at all i don't know if we ever get to a point where something like this doesn't happen
1: yeah i think i understand where you're coming from of that sense especially of like we just need to raise better boys because there are there are amazing men who would never lay lay a hand on a person there are amazing people who are raising kids you know, with consent culture and like all of these other elements. And I think self-protection and, you know, all of these other things are really important for people. Like we, we teach self-defense. I, you know, I, we do workshops around self-defense. So I, you know, I'm a self-defense instructor and, you know, having these toolkits in your tool belt are so important and you could train every single day and have, you know, your concealed carry and all these, you can have these personal protections and your, your brain still might freeze. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's also like, I don't want to put the blame on anybody who if their whole life is a service of, you know, I can take care of myself. And in that one moment where that harm was happening, you know, everything switched. And so then holding that guilt, shame around, like, you know, I I know how to fight. I know how to protect, protect myself. And I couldn't in that moment. And then also on like the flip side, majority of the, you know, people who are perpetrated are male identifying. And that's not to then negate like females are perpetrators, non-binary people are perpetrators. Anybody can be a perpetrator the same way anybody can experience exploitation. I think the conversations are also really hard because like you named, you know, there are really great people who would never do that and they're going to raise their kids to treat people with respect. And there are people who perpetrate violence who are going to raise their kids in a different way. And that doesn't mean that those kids are then going to perpetrate violence, you know, there are households where that's never been talked about, where that harm hasn't happened to them, and that that person still might perpetrate violence because a lot of times violence is an opportunity. And so I think starting the conversation around education as a prevention and not an intervention, because for a long time all of, our, all of the services around sexualized violence were intervention services, so when harm already happened. So coming in as a, like a preventative measure and talking about like what sexualized violence is, what, you know, for how, how harm manifests, it can give a warning sign for somebody who, one, might be doing that behavior and not realizing that it's hurtful because we don't know what happens inside households. We don't know what, you know, happens inside somebody's own psyche, you know, because it's also very personal. Somebody might experience harm. That doesn't mean that person's going to, you know, perpetrate harm. It's very secular for somebody. And so if we can come in and talk about what harm looks like as a whole and not calling out, that's the one thing that like when we go into classrooms if somebody says a question where we're like, uh, or whatever, or like it's hurtful in some way, we answer that question. And we say like, well, maybe looking at it from this perspective or, you know, those kinds of things. So we never want to shut somebody down because that might be an opportunity to change their perspective on something. So if somebody has like this feeling of, you know, that they've maybe have perpetrated harm. And they're like, well, you know, that's not harm. And so we can give it to them in like a different perspective of, you know, you can have force somebody to give you oral copulation. That's like a big one. Like, how can you force somebody to give you a blowjob? I'm like, well, you can. And these are maybe potentially ways how, but not like explicitly. But, you know, like naming all of these different control dynamics, it might change the way that they view the behavior that they're already doing. So it might change the narrative for themselves because they may not realize that that's abuse or Mm -hmm. that's harm. Yeah, because that's not modeled to them. Yeah. So it, it, I can see it on both ends. As somebody who did intervention services for like six years, like straight on, just intervention services compared to the prevention, you can see the wheels working, in some like especially in like high school and like middle school, because sometimes this is the first time. These kids are having a conversation around what these things are. And it opens the opportunity to reflect on behaviors that they may already be having and also for the future recognizing when toxic behaviors are there. So it is a safety measure because if you don't know what consent looks like and you don't know when consent isn't present and you get into a situation and maybe you're like, I didn't feel good about that, but you don't, you don't have that knowledge to kind of fall back on, It can feel really isolating. And if we're, you know, talking to your friend and they're experiencing something similar and they're like, oh, that's normal. You can kind of step out of that and be like, oh, that's not normal. Or, you know, this made me feel this way. And oh, that's a sexual assault or whatever that is. Or that that person overcrossed my boundary and I didn't like it. And so it gives kids the opportunity to learn and grow from the base level. Whether they've already experienced harm or they've already caused harm, it's a reflection. And I think that's really important to reflect on behavior, because we can always grow and we can always learn. And if we just don't talk about it, it's going to happen anyway.
2: And I think I think talking about it um, kind of like I don't know how to say it. like um, it's something in the past that's been normalized and not talked about. Now, if we talk about it more, I think it makes people who are more prone to uh, cause harm, less comfortable to do that if everyone's talking about it.
0: Yeah, all of that said not to discredit the effectiveness of prevention and these intervention methods. I think where I'm coming from when I'm talking about that counterpoint is the idea of your stereotypical rape, of holding somebody down and forcing yourself on them. I don't Mm -hmm. believe the idea that, first off, the people that you were saying, we need to raise better men, I think the people that are hearing that message and going to be receptive to that message are already the people that are doing, doing that. Yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. like a mute, you're, you're speaking to everybody who already is aligned with this. Mm-hmm. I think someone who has a kid who is raised the opposite way or somebody who themselves doesn't think that rape is bad, you're not mm-hmm. going to get them with that message. No. The idea that, oh, rape is bad, they, they probably do know that and don't mm-hmm. care or can separate themselves from that in some regard. It's almost, we're just reinforcing the message amongst the people that are already aligned with it. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that is some of the sentiment behind the idea of raise better men. I think it's trying to attack the idea of rape, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's just kind of like this rallying cry that is misplaced. Because yeah. we're already, the people that, are, that hear that and say, yeah, they're already raising good kids like mm-hmm. we're already do they're already doing that mm-hmm. the ones that hear, don't hear that message and wouldn't care
2: about the message are the ones that are going to perpetrate rape. yeah i think a better message is like talking about like how rape culture has existed mm-hmm. and like moving towards like creating consent culture um just an example that comes to my head is like you know if someone is a professional athlete and they're like one of the best players on uh, a professional team and they have um you know have allegations against them, um, of like sexual violence. Oftentimes, you know, they're making a lot of money for that organization or whatever. And it's kind of swept under the rug and like things like that, that kind of like keep like this sort of, um, like culture of this happens and it's not a big deal. I think that is more of a topic than just like, like, you know, it does, it's not directly saying, Oh, um, men need to be better or like, It's kind of like our culture as a whole,
1: accountability culture. Yeah, and that's where it needs like the people need to be held accountable, and like having what was it? It was like I don't remember who it was. My my partner's really big into football. I think it's Deshaun Watson. That's not his name. That's not his name. His name's not Deshaun.
2: Deshaun. Deshaun. Deshaun Watson. And he had like a he
1: had a seven game like recess where he couldn't play for seven games, and that like that was it. I think or some it was like
2: as a
0: result of some allegations as al-
1: it was like like 20 plus allegations and so uh like thinking about that especially who usually watches football real identified, yeah. 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 Male yeah, identified yeah. people right? right and so if that's also being shown as like
0: but to be fair most guys are not going to be that guy playing for a no, professional NFL. Most people are not playing professional, like are
1: not, yeah, professional, yeah, like, are sure. not professional athletes. Yeah. and so that's also like showing the accountability though, because this yeah. is somebody who is in media. Yeah, and it it also it perpetrates that rape culture of you know like boys will be boys. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not right. And you know I think the the narrative needs to be holding all people who cause harm accountable. Yeah. And unfortunately, the narrative is males are perpetrators. And so a lot of the times, there was also a campaign, oh, years ago, it was Men Stop Rape was the campaign, was Men Stop Rape. And it was from like early 2000s, 90s. We were still doing it when I started this work and we had buttons that we would make and then they would say like Men Stop Rape. And we didn't have any information on the campaign like out on our table. And we would always get people saying like Men Experience Sexual Assault too like What is this? And we're like, yes, Uh, but the like the the movement around it was that the main people who are perpetrating this violence are male identified, and so having males hold other males accountable um, in that. So like, if somebody is making like if there's like sexual harassment going on, if people are making you know rape rape jokes or those kinds of things, somebody else in that social circle holding that person accountable. Because if, you know, somebody on the outside, especially someone who's female identifying coming into like a a testosterone heavy group and they're making jokes and somebody says like that joke's not appropriate, you're going to push that person inside and say like, shut up, you know, or like, oh, it was just a joke. But if it's another person in that friend group or another person who's on that same kind of like social level or those kinds of things, holding that person accountable, you're more likely to hear your friend out than a stranger or somebody who you don't respect so that was kind of the for that movement i don't know if it's still in existence we don't put those buttons out anymore
0: (laughs) how do you guys work through the i don't know how to phrase this but Mm um rape fantasies which i've heard that that's not the appropriate word to call them but that's kind of because it's not really rape and i don't think anybody Mm -hmm. actually wants to experience a rape but
2: Oh, like consensual, non-consent—that—that like—is that how of, you would phrase it? I'm not sure. It, I've read an SVA, does,
1: SVU episode about that. A rape fantasy or yeah. sexual,
2: like within a within like people who are partners. That yeah, type well, of
1: thing. or they set it up right. Like it's something where like somebody sets it up where it is. Uh, where somebody is wanting to experience a sexual assault, but it's consensual in the sense of like they set it up and they're pre-planned. Yes, pre-meditated. It's a pre a Premeditated, and they're okay with it.
0: Do you think that is problematic? Is that like breeding a culture? I mean, I don't want to it's...
1: kink shame anyone, but personally, that's the face I'm just gonna make. No words. Just a okay. You know, if that's somebody's fantasy. There might be something else lying underneath that.
0: But I had a, I dated a girl one time who wanted to go down that route, and she told me, and I was like, "No, nope, nope. you're not catching me up. Yeah. It like, like no, yeah. no, no, thank you." Yeah, but um, that is there are some girls who like the idea of maybe you coming over late at night, and they just happen to leave the door unlocked, and but mm-hmm. and it's different from rape, a hundred percent. But there's this weird, it's it's adjacent in some weird mm-hmm. way. Where if we're talking about problematic things, I don't know. If you would add that into the category people would, there would be a discussion around that. I'm not really sure why that came into my head. I was <laughs> thinking about that and I wanted to ask.
1: Well, I think if there's that conversation before... Right. If, if the, because it's just parties like us saying, oh,
0: we're going to have sex tonight in some, some way. way, but then yeah. it, it gets a little at dicey. Time. it gets a little dicey. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think if both parties are agreeing and okay with it mm-hmm. and it's consensual on that, in that space for both of them, then that's consensual.
2: And there's a, like no gray area. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> mean, yeah. but do you think
0: that's problematic in th- what it represents? Or am I just grap- grasping as no, straws here? I
1: think it's, I think it's really hard because it's also like the, it leads into other fantasies for so maybe for somebody who you know like porn and other culture like that there's not the conversation of consent before the acts happen and so for maybe somebody seeing that played out or hearing about it played out that might elicit a fantasy um for somebody who has you know like full consent moving forward like let's say you you and your partner agree on this you you set the you know you have a safe word those kinds of things you get to say no and that person respects it. And there's consent based around that. Like, that's completely okay. You can do whatever you want on the bedroom as long as it's consensual in my eyes. If you want to do it, have fun. Um, but I think on, like, the outside perspective, if somebody was, like, seeing this played out and didn't know the conversations or other things like that, that, that could elicit harm. I rem- the S- I'm the going to go on a tangent. The SVU episode, I remember specifically watching. And I... This person was on, like a, like, a kink website and set up with somebody to, like, break in and, like, have that, that kind of, like, rape fantasy. Um, but the person who was assaulted, another person made, like, an account about them. So that person was assaulted, but the person who was the perpetrator was, like, no, this was set up on a website. So then they had to figure out, Olivia Benson and them had to figure out who made the fake profile yeah that's week. dangerous that's, that's right. yeah. you See, don't, like, don't know the yeah. person yeah like, so like ugh. that person really woke up and was assaulted and the person like left as part of like the fantasy and then they found out who that person was and they were like uh no this person invited me over like this is their profile and all of this stuff it was very wild to wow. watch
0: Yeah, that would be (laughs) a tough. I would not want the job of unpacking that.
2: No, I
1: was sitting there and I was like, wait a minute. And that's the first time, like when you said that, I was like, that was the first time I ever knew that that was a fantasy.
2: Yeah, yeah. I definitely uh, like talking about what we were talking about earlier and like the culture of things. I definitely do think that, um, and it's kind of a little bit aligned with that like fantasy of like sexual violence. I do think, um, you know, a large part of pornography is pretty plot problematic with like how it um, displays violence as like like sexual violence and like extreme things as like a normal
0: well choking how prevalent is choking now very
1: high up there yeah and it's also like there's safe ways to do it too and that's never modeled in these things so it's just kind of like this this fantasy right this this obtainable thing yeah and there's never conversations of consent or if it's okay yeah. or and safe the, words.
2: Those scenes, it's never showing before. Like, okay, is this okay? Mm. This not? It's, it's just like straight into it, you know? So, yeah. Well, porn and is just an interesting case study on
0: almost society as a whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how we look back like 200 years from now mm-hmm. on on porn and if, if people oppose how we handled it or if mm-hmm. we handled it the right way.
1: Well, even exposure. I mean, exposure, especially to kids. Oh,
0: it's, yeah. Kids having like, access to middle that school. is crazy. Yeah. I
2: mean, middle school, I know. About, they
1: have it on their phones yeah. and I'm sitting there I'm like, you're 12. How do you even, you know, yeah. know to have access to this or to look this up? I mean,
2: Like me at, me at that age, I had mm-hmm. access. Mm-hmm. Like sixth, seventh grade. Wow. Not ideal. Um, especially, ideal. especially like what type of porn is most prevalent on like the main Mm sites you know like i i do acknowledge like there are um you know like there is better um like uh sexual content out there that people put out and it's not like um this like really violent um like these really violent like super extreme scenes but
0: but even that is a slippery slope because what Mm -hmm. is what determines problematic right if it's two consenting adults that yeah i mean could you would hope that the people that are doing it actually want to be there and want to do this and are not forced into some way. But if they both want to be there and want to engage in this type of activity.
2: Yeah. I just think think like the overexposure (laughs) of really violent things can like kind of set people up to think maybe that's how it is and like want that from their partner, you know, and when really those things aren't, they're just really normalized within that industry so i i think that part can be problematic i don't
0: know yeah i don't know that kind of ties back into the sexualizing kids thing which mm-hmm. i think everybody would agree is a problem the idea that we're sexualizing kids but then there's the problem of what does that mean because mm-hmm. kids like you said kids are sexualized in some regards and how do you combat i mean we were all in middle school once mm-hmm. people i this is going to be a throwback reference. Do you guys... I don't even know if I should go here, but we're going to... The two girls, one cup Ooh, phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think I saw that uh, maybe sixth grade, mm-hmm. maybe younger, maybe like fourth or fifth. No, maybe maybe sixth grade. But that, mm-hmm. is, uh, that is pretty crazy for a sixth grader to see. That, yeah. that would be pretty crazy for really anybody to see, but mm-hmm. that... You just see that. If you're a kid and you have access to the even if you don't have access to the internet, if you were a kid around other kids,
1: you had access. You have so access you mm-hmm. to some access. crazy stuff.
0: Somebody's going to find something that's crazy uh-huh. and show everybody mm-hmm. just to say this is crazy, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember like it was like 4th grade was the first time that I ever saw like pornography mm-hmm. and it was one of my one of the boys in the back of the bus saw it on like his brother's computer or something and took a video of it on his like flip phone and like was showing it to people and so it's also like if you have older siblings and like all these other things because like i was around like middle school when i saw like two girls one cup and then like there was like the sandbox one i don't know there was a lot of different there's a lot ones. there's, there's a, lot a lot of different ones it became a wormhole very quickly um And it was also kind of like not like a rite of passage, but like everybody was talking about it. You wanted to see it because everyone's talking about it. Oh, this is so messed up. You you were cool if you didn't see it. it.
0: You Mm -hmm. had to be it was society. Yeah. In middle or middle school or in Mm -hmm. elementary school. Like these are the cultural things that you they just happen. Nobody Mm -hmm. would want that to happen to their kids, but that's just you go through that.
1: Yeah, you saw it. I don't know how much stuff I saw on my family's literal. Like too much desktop computer too much. in the, like the computer room, I was like, who's monitoring yeah. this? Yeah, what yeah. I was all the time like who was monitoring <laughs> monitoring me on like MySpace?" No well, and one.
0: things that your friends would show you or oh, yeah. if you were playing sports and you were... i mean I in the dugout, I saw some crazy stuff because <laughs> it's just you guys are waiting you're waiting to go up to bat or mm-hmm. whatever, and you're just somebody's going down a rabbit hole and they're showing everybody, and how do you combat that, and more mm-hmm. so, how do you combat that without infringing on people's rights and on parental rights i mean Mm -hmm.
1: well it's hard too because like and also like as another kid so even if you don't want to see it and you're like oh this makes me sick or whatever you're seeing it you're seeing it and then if you're like no i don't want to see it or you tell the adult you don't want to be that kid
0: nobody wants to be that kid Nobody wants
1: to be that kid and so then it's also then like you're in that limbo if, if i say something or even if something's not okay and i say something like I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to get made fun of. So I'd rather just sit here and watch it. That's hard.
0: Yeah, it's almost like we've opened Pandora's box yeah. in some regards. Just through our progress in society. Mm-hmm. And now people recognize that there are some problems, but nobody has a real tangible way of reeling things back in. Yeah, And so that's like the buzzword of sexualizing kids. Yeah, nobody would agree with doing that. <laughs> but what does that what does that look like? How do we mm-hmm. not do that? And you do have the counter argument of, like you said, teaching kids about their bodies and about these things. Maybe that exposes a kid to the words needed to express something that they went through. Mm-hmm. So if some kid hadn't gone to one of your guys's teachings or something and had been sexually assaulted, wouldn't know that that's wrong or wouldn't have the words to express what happened to them because mm-hmm. they they never went
2: through a lecture like your guys's. Yeah and yeah. we aren't necessarily like teaching about body parts and stuff like that. They they have like separate sex ed programs and we're yeah. more like yeah. consent. Okay. Yeah, not necessarily relationship you guys, but going through a program Sure. Like that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. No.
1: Well, it, it opens doors and then uh, I had a thought. It might be gone. I, I, hate when
2: that happens. Happens. I had it one of I think I had two of those.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, "Oh,
0: sexualizing kids." Oh.
1: When we're talking about anatomy, I think it's also super important to us, like, break that barrier of, like, our bodies aren't inherently sexual. Mm-hmm. These are just our bodies right. and that we all have bodies. And so I think, like, when we're just talking about bodies after, like, harm has happened or, like, in through the lens of harm, then I think it adds to the, like, sexualize like, the the mm-hmm. – like, the sexualization of it in a way because then it's, like – Oh, we're only addressing these parts of your body regarding sex instead of just like basic health.
0: Making it into like a taboo mm-hmm. thing.
1: So, like if, because if we don't talk about it and then harm happens and then we start talking about it or, you know, certain things happen and we only talk about it around, you know, like if someone starts their period or things like that. So then be- it becomes taboo. Because if the conversation has always been, you know, these are our body parts. You know, this is part of our basic anatomy. We have an arm, a hand, and a vagina. You know, there's, it's a piece of our body or, you know, those kinds of things. And it kind of just becomes normalized, not in the sense of, you know, normal through like sexualization, but just as us as a, a being, which I think is important for kids to also recognize that like their whole body is a part of themselves and this, and their private parts aren't just some like detached anomaly to them.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky road to yeah. walk. I I'm <laughs> not
1: a parent. And yeah. I'm going to preface that. I am not a parent. Yeah, this is
0: coming from a group of people who are not parents. Yep. Yep. We're well, just yeah. spitballing here. Yeah.
1: Well, because we get asked from like parents all the time too, or like or even like on the hotline if harm happens or like, well, how, what have you experienced? And I'm like, I'm not a parent, you know, but, you know, potty regression or like different things like that. So you can name some levels, but also I don't want to give somebody parenting advice. I don't want to be put in that position of like, this is how you should parent your kids because I feel like that's very, you know, that's very personal and how you want to raise your kid and you're, you're raising somebody. And, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me because I'm going to probably raise my kids differently than somebody else would. And they're mm-hmm. going to raise their kids different than that. I have to do that with and remember that with my family of like, oh, this isn't my kid. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know. We're, we're in an interesting time mm-hmm. on a lot of different fronts. <laughs> To say the least, right?
1: Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like things are moving like in a positive way, like towards the future and like having these conversations. I mean, even just through like the Me Too movement and the normalization of having these conversations. I mean, talking about, you know, rape culture as a whole and like even just like our systems at play and like systematically where things are not benefiting survivors. I think it's important to have these conversations and like bring them to the light, even when they're uncomfortable. Um and, like, to talk about different views and have those kinds of conversations because, I mean, intimacy and sex is so private for so many people and so is sexualized violence and they're different. And so when there's that, like, betrayal and that those lines are blurred, it's like, when when is it okay to talk about sex and when is it okay to talk about sexualized violence and, like, what does that look like? And, you know, just in these few years of, like, being, you know, education and being in the schools like these kids you walk in a room and you're like what does consent mean and they they'll tell you permission you have to ask it is mutual it's affirmative you know they're able to use these language this this language and like have an understanding of that which I think is super empowering and when I was doing this work at 2021 that wasn't the case and so you know the growth within that and the comfortability in the conversations has grown and I think a lot of it starts at home you know, because if you talk with your kids about certain things, like it's going to be more comfortable to talk about with others. And um, there's pros and cons to everything. And so, I mean, from what I've experienced, I see like a really good forward trajectory on these conversations and people understanding um, consent and how to treat others with respect. Because I think that's like the baseline when you talk about respect, when you talk about boundaries, it's treating people with mutual respect. Um, which should be a common thread throughout every aspect of people's lives. And so I feel like it lays the the framework for a lot of other inter- intersections in people's lives.
0: Yeah, I think we're making progress. I think society as a whole is is good about moving forward. It just doesn't always happen as fast as people would want in yeah. some ways.
1: And there's some people who really don't want it. So. <laughs> and those those people are going to fight for what they believe in. And I'm, I'm in a stance of like, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. And I hope you d- like people do the same for themselves.
0: Do you guys get a lot of pushback against the organization just in general or? Not really. That's a good sign. Not really.
1: Not anymore. I mean, like I said, we get like the side eyes, those kinds of things. Um, We don't really typically, typically get people like coming up to us and saying like, you need to leave or like those we kinds are of things. We guys are a controversial
0: no. group. Like you guys are out here just providing support for yeah. those that need it.
1: People don't like the word rape. And so I think that's also, like, when we go into schools, we use different verbiage for who we are. Sometimes, like, we'll say, like, we're a part of our CAP program, child abuse prevention program, um, housed under the North Coast Rape Crisis Team. <laughs> isn't good,
0: isn't, in, in a sense, the word is good that it elicits that response? Because you, you wouldn't want it to be something too to normalized. Be, yeah, that you could yeah. just walk by. But when you hear rape, it's everybody like, oh. perks up because mm-hmm. you know it's something serious.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's good and bad. And so it um, will continue to change our, our verbiage and our language. And we're going to talk about the same things. So whether you like the the North Coast Safe Crisis Team as an agency or the Child Abuse Prevention Program as an agency, we're going to come in and we're going to talk about stuff. And I think that's really important to continue to show up. Um, I don't, We don't get a lot of like societal pushback around things. And I mean, we're a service agency. And so when people are coming to us, they've experienced harm in some capacity. And so if you don't want people to receive services from harm that they've experienced.
0: We got some questions. You got some questions. Yeah. Yeah. Got some
1: questions. <laughs> so.
0: Okay. Well, guys, we've done two hours. We could run. Oh my gosh. Time. Yeah, we've next? been in here for a minute. Oh, I kept you guys for a while. <laughs> um, do you want to plug all of your resources where people can find the website, all your stuff, any social media, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it.
1: Okay. Um, so we are on Instagram under NCRCT Humboldt. Um, we're also on Facebook as the North Coast Rape Crisis Team. You can find our website at ncrct.org. Um, we have volunteer opportunities as well as some part-time job opportunities as well. So if you look under our website and join our team, it'll give us some information. If you're interested in being a volunteer with our agency, our next cohort is going to start in August. Um, on our website, you can... Uh, access the volunteer application and connect with us through that way. We also have a 24 hour hotline, um, which is 445 um, 2881. Right? Yep. Okay. We have two of them, and I always get to mix up. One's 465 2851. Okay. Um, and then we also have uh, our business line. So if anyone wants to have any like inquiries or questions about our, our agency, um, you can give that a call, and that number is 707. 707- 4432737.
2: 7. Yeah. And just thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you so thank you guys much. for coming yeah. on. It was yeah. a, yeah. a, talking a It was off. a lot of fun. <laughs> difficult conversation,
0: <laughs> yeah. so it's yeah. kind of like a double-edged sword saying that, but yeah. I really appreciate you guys coming on. We'll have to do this again. Yeah, Enjoy this.
1: for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah.
2: Thank you and good to meet you. Good to
1: yeah. meet you guys. Yeah. All right.
2: Thanks guys. <laughs> thank you. Hey.